we're going to cover the first two chapters of Nehemiah. I'm going to read them, and then we'll pray, and then we will cover this first part of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that's Persia, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept for many days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your faithful servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place, the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah gets word of Jerusalem. It's in ruins. It's the walls are broken down. The gates are burned. It's vulnerable. And so he prays to God about the situation. Now four months pass. And chapter 2 says this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him. So it's, it's a party that um, Nehemiah is providing the wine for as the cupbearer. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence before. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So I said to the king, 
Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, because the good hand of my God was upon me. So, Lord, I ask that tonight your word would go into our innermost being and it would stir up brokenness, it would stir up the ruins within us. And that God, in the midst of all of the busyness and confusion of our lives, you would pull out a very clear calling. Lord, that you would touch us, touch our hearts, and instill within us a passion and purpose for living and serving you. So God, burden our hearts, I pray, with the burdens in this world. And be exalted in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight is the first of three parts in Nehemiah. And we're going to look at wall building. Because that's what Jerusalem needed were walls. So tonight we're going to look at the pre-building phase. Next week, the building phase. And the week after, the post-building phase. And so there's three phases. So what does it look like? As Nehemiah is called to build the city of Jerusalem for God, what does it look like for him, and what does that ultimately look like for us? It is my belief that as we look at Nehemiah, that we're not looking just at a history lesson, although that is something that happened in the past, but we're looking at a story that has patterns or algorithms, if you will, that fit within the calling of God's people today. In other words, I believe that God has a city, a Jerusalem, for each and every one of us that lies in ruins and rubble and that he's asking to build back together. Right? We have a world that's full of brokenness. There are broken people. There are broken places. That is our Jerusalem. And it is somewhere within that rubble, that brokenness, that he's calling us to go. We're all Nehemiahs. We're all builders And it's about where he's going to put us. So this first message we're titling 
breaking for a broken world. And because that's what the world is. It's like Jerusalem. It's broken. And we want to develop hearts like Nehemiah's. That where we see, when we see the brokenness, we break for it. And that there is this pull, this gravitation to go and build the brokenness. To restore it. So that's the pre-building phase. We're going to be seeing, how does one get to become a builder? What does Nehemiah go through? What does all this look like? So, Nehemiah, who is this dude? Um, how many of you guys have read the book of Nehemiah before? You're kind of familiar with the story? That's good. Okay, so we can do a brief survey here. The year is 445 B.C. That basically means we're about 450 years, almost 500 years before Jesus. So half a millennium before Jesus. We're 100 years after the exile. The exiles, when Babylon came to a fully established kingdom of Israel, and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple of Jerusalem, and exiled the king and all the rulers and much of the people, the important people. So they were removed from their homeland, and the kingdom of Israel collapsed. It became no more. They were now servants and slaves to the Babylonians and scattered around the world. So we're about 100 years past that. And in the meantime, the Babylonians, who are the great evil, they have fallen to another kingdom called the Persians. And the Persians, although still evil, because, you know, they're like the world ruler and the Israelites thought that they should be the world ruler, they were a nice kind of evil. Because the Persians came in and said, we see a lot of disgruntled people around the world that the Babylonians made them disgruntled by taking them from their homeland. So the Persians said, go back to your homeland. We want everybody to live happily in our kingdom. So the Jews began to go back to Jerusalem. And under different leaders like Zerubbabel and Joshua and Ezra, they rebuilt the temple. So the temple in Jerusalem is standing. Now we come to Nehemiah's time and the walls still haven't been built. That or they were built and they had been destroyed once again. So we're not really sure what. But the case is, Nehemiah hears from a guy that was just in Jerusalem, things are bad. There are no walls. Everything's in ruins. Now, Nehemiah, who is this character? He seems to be a journaler. Because most of the book of Nehemiah, as you read it, there's a lot of I, we, right? It's, it's as if this is coming from his own journals as he's experiencing this. So it's a very unique perspective in the Bible. We have this first-person account, which isn't very common in the Bible. Usually it's a third person. Then you have a first person. Nehemiah's own thoughts. What is he feeling? He even tells you when he's talking to the king, I was very afraid. Like You begin to feel what it would be like to be a Nehemiah, thus inviting us to become a Nehemiah, right? Um, so he's a cupbearer. Now, in my youth, in my ignorance, I thought a cupbearer is just that cute position where you kind of hold the cup, and it's like the chalice, right? And it's all gold, and it's got jewels on it, and it's just like this trembling hand coming up to the king, and he's all nervous. He's like, I tasted your wine. It's safe. I didn't die. And he gives it to the king, and the king's like, thank you, slave. And, you know, get out of here. And then he drinks away, and that's the party, right? Well, the cupbearer was actually a lot more significant than that, although that was part of his job. He bore the wine to the king and made sure it wasn't poison. Because listen, 
If you wanted the easy way to kill a king, you don't storm the castle. He's got troops protecting him. You poison the food. Let it come in on the sly, right? Kill the king, and you're like, ah, cool, I'm king now. And the, you know, you rise up in a revolt in his absence. So the king needed a trustworthy person. Somebody who he knew would not be bribed by enemies. Somebody that he could confide in. We're not just talking about, oh, I trust you to do your job <laughs> kind of thing, right? He's trusting the cupbearer with his life. So Nehemiah, the cupbearer, he isn't just the guy that brings the cup to the king. He is trusted and in fact, history has shown from other cupbearers that the cupbearer knew just as much, if not more, of the secret details of the king than his own wife. So we're talking about a very close relationship, very trusted person. That's Nehemiah. He's in a seat of influence, a seat of power. Do you think that God just accidentally put him there? <laughs> He's in a very ideal place to be the builder of Jerusalem. Well, he was also in charge of the wine cellar. So this isn't just the guy that brings the cup to the king, like, not poisoned. No, he's in charge of the whole cellar. Now, the king, he has a massive cellar, right? All the aged wines that are sitting there and getting fermented, and some of them are, like, ranked by, this is for, you know, when dignitaries come, bring this wine. This is just for every night kind of wine. It's like, And, of course, wine was the common drink of the time. We have, like, coffee, soda, and all kinds of options. Back then, it was unsafe water or wine. That one was basically your option. So wine was a big deal, right? It was a big industry on drinks. And Nehemiah's in charge of all of this. So he's the one that's crafting it, making sure, you know, quality control. He's stocking it, taking inventory, and he's choosing the right wine for the right moment. When the Persians would have a party, which they often did, by the way, the kings were known for running large debts. The Persian Empire got in trouble because of the king's partying. That's the kind of kings that they had. Um, Nehemiah was behind all of this. And, And the Persians were known for drunkenness in their parties. And so Nehemiah is responsible for supplying the wine to the king and all of his, you know, cats and dogs that come to his party. And you know what? This is just a total side note. That really makes me stop and investigate what does it mean for a believer in God to work in a secular environment. Nehemiah, being this close to the king, no doubt has compromised positions. And yet God uses him. Sometimes I think we need to think deeply about things and not oversimplify things, right? But that's a whole other topic. (laughs) We're not going down there. That's Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah hears about the walls in Jerusalem. They're ruined. And, and his reaction is striking, is it not? How would you, Okay, we hear on the news all the time, right? This place got bombed. That person got shot. This school had another shooting. This plane went down. This plane's missing. We still don't know where it is. Like, right? We mudslide in Washington. Like, we hear all these things, right? And we're just like, huh, glad it's not us. We're glad they got that fire out on Wednesday. And and we we rarely have the kind of reaction that Nehemiah has to news like that. Nehemiah hears of it and he says that, I sat down, wept, and mourned for days. And then he fasted and he prayed. This was an intense reaction, right? Now we think, what's the big deal? At least I used to. The walls are broken down. A mere cosmetic blemish to the city. That'll be fixed in no time. Well, it's actually quite a big deal. Without the walls, 
Jerusalem itself was in danger of losing its identity. All right? This is what I mean. Jerusalem is the only monotheistic culture in the time. Monotheistic, right? One God. All the other nations are pagans. They believe in multiple gods and worship these gods through a bunch of weird ways, right? So here's Jerusalem. It's like an island surrounded by a sea of paganism and corruption. And without walls, the very identity of God's people are in danger of being absorbed into the pagan culture. And so there's an urgency here. Because we already know all of the Israelites' tendency to wander, right? So Nehemiah's like, this isn't good. Our people need identity. They need structure. They need to know who they are and where they're safe. But also, the walls, these walls are a symbol of creation. When you open Nehemiah, you open up a scene where walls that should be standing are crumbled Gates that should be blocking are burned up. In other words, it sounds like the beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the waters. That's bad. There's no structure. There's no form. There's no life. There's nothing that can live because there's no organization. There's no creation. But as you know the creation story, God steps into this chaotic rubble and he begins speaking and his word begins to form all this and to control it and to order it and now structure and function is happening and creation's coming and life is occurring. He takes this rubble and creates a world. And when we open Nehemiah, we see this rubble. It's the state of creation. And Nehemiah is going in as a creator as a builder, and he's going to put all this together and make something out of it, and then step back and say, this is very good. And then there will be rest, right? So, God took the chaos, made creation, but what happened when man rebelled? Well, creation is decreating, as some have put it, right? We've got everything out of control. Man can't even control himself, let alone the environment, and everything just seems to be going back towards The beginning, darkness, formless, void. We're moving that way. It's like a de-evolution, if you will. (laughs) And here we have Jerusalem's built. Israel, like Adam and Eve, rebels against God. The city that was created and that was built is now decreated. It's it's deconstructed. And now Nehemiah's going to go and he's going to restore things. And isn't that what Jesus did on this earth? As he steps into the mess that Adam and Eve and we ourselves have been extending, this decreated world, Jesus steps in and says, there's coming a time when all things will be made new and look to me as the example. Me, I'm the preview of what's to come. And Jesus comes in and he starts, he enters the brokenness and he starts building up what has been broken down. He starts restoring, he starts healing. He becomes a builder. And Nehemiah is going to Jerusalem in the same way. If you will, a foreshadow of Jesus to come, right? And so there he goes, to become a creator of this broken city, which is a picture of our broken world. And all around us, not just the creation, but part of the creation is places, right? Places are broken, messed up third world countries. People are broken. 
all over, even in a first world country like America. We have you know, students that are just going through a hard time with their families, people that don't know who they are, that are depressed, that are turning to all kinds of influences and things to try to fix their life. We live in brokenness all around us. And like Nehemiah, God wants to put a burden on our hearts to go into that and to build it up and to create it and to bring life into it. So that is us. That is Nehemiah. That is our Jerusalem all around us, broken. And the first step to becoming a builder is having our hearts break as Nehemiah's did. You see the brokenness and we break for it. Now what I find interesting, and this is encouraging to me, in this book of Nehemiah, is that we can sit back here and hear what I'm just saying about breaking for the brokenness and going out there and like one of God's creators, going to create this rubble and make something out of it. We can sit back and think, it's a good job for JC. It's a good job for Brandon, Pastor Mike. We, we think of that in terms of that's a church job or that's a sacred job. That's God's work. And then we look at other things and we think that's a secular job, right? That's a normal job. That's just man's work. And we have, in our minds, we've kind of created these two worlds. There's sacred work. There's secular work. Example. Pastors, teachers at Lake Road Christian School, uh, missionaries, worship leaders, Christian songwriters, Christian book writers. I don't know, there's other things. People that work at a conference center, sacred jobs. And then on the other side, plumbers, God forbid, governmental, public school teachers, professors, dentists, um, doctors, Secular songwriters, directors, and movie makers, right? We go down the line. Those do secular jobs. But I want to say that those distinctions are stupid. (laughs) Biblically, they don't make sense and they don't exist. That's what to me is encouraging about the book of Nehemiah. Because what do we have in Nehemiah? We have a cup bearer, he's literally a politician. God uses one of these creeps. He's also doing a job that is quite sketchy and questionable. He's supplying the wine for sinful drunken parties and for the king. This is a modern day bartender. Can Christians work in a bar? (laughs) Right? So Nehemiah has one of the most secular jobs available... And we think, nah, that's not. Ezra, the guy that was in Jerusalem just before Nehemiah, he was a priest, right? He's teaching the people the Torah. And revival is happening. We look at Ezra. That's just the book before. And we're like, that is a sacred job. And that's what God needs to fix the city of Jerusalem. Another Ezra. But no, we turn to Nehemiah and we have a cupbearer. We have a wine supplier for the drunken king and his minions. <laughs> and God takes his cupbearer and says... I've got a job for you. 
And we're like, oh, cool, he's converted. Like, he's coming out of the world, and he's going to go do a secret job. Like, right? Like, the person that leaves this job of sex trafficking or whatever, and now he's a pastor. Woo! That's, like, amazing. No. He's going from cupbearer to construction worker. From, sec- from secular job to secular job. And God is using it. So here's what I want to say in all that rant. is just this. Stop dividing Nehemiah against Ezra. Or cupbearer against priest. Or secular versus sacred. And start seeing the way the Bible sees it. Is that all work is holy work. Because it's God's work. All work well, of course, there are some limitations, right? If, if your work is killing people and pressing them and putting them in slavery, I wouldn't say that's God's work. But all work where we are working with creation and making something constructive like a creator, all of that is God's work. So you and I, as we sit here and think, well, yeah, yeah, being a builder sounds great, but that's not quite my alley. You know, I'm just going to go to a university and I want to study to be a journalist, You know, like a builder thing. That's JC's realm. No, no. God uses every realm of work. That is your avenue. That is your city. Somewhere in there, that's where the brokenness exists. And you're going to go become a journalist. And you're going to go build up a city in the midst of that brokenness. Or whatever you're going to be. So that to me is encouraging. That all of us here are called to enter the brokenness. All right, so let's do this now. We see that all of us are qualified. There's no distinction. How do we become builders? How do we get to that point? By looking at Nehemiah, I see for him, there were four tools that he had that were the beginning stages of becoming a builder. Four tools that helped him be a builder. And it would be my encouragement that we look at these and say, do I have these or not? And if not, let's get them. And if we do, then let's continue to thrive with these tools. So these are your four tools to become a builder. Number one, builders have a burden. Builders have a burden. And we see that obviously with Nehemiah, as he's driven to pray and fast and he's weeping for the walls of the city, a burden. A burden is what makes good work become God's work. There's a lot of good work out there. You can go feed homeless, you can go do something nice, you can go discover a cure for cancer, walk an old lady across the street. There's a lot of good work out there. But good work becomes God's work when it is driven by a burden. When someone's heart is weighed heavy for it and they pour all of their heart into it and they even pour their life into it to the point where sweat, blood, and tears is nothing because they're willing to give their life for this work. That's the kind of work Jesus did. That's what God work looks like. So a burden. Let's move from just, oh yeah, we do good things to we do God's work. And we're willing to pour our life into it. Sometimes um, I think that part of our reason for not having a burden for the brokenness in this world is because we've refused to see the people in it as our brothers and sisters. And we've refused to see the places in it as our home. 
Right. How do we take bad news and take it in stride? How do we hear bad news and not make, let it affect us? We just say, oh, that's Washington. That's not my home. Oh, that's, that's China. That doesn't affect me. Oh, I don't even know that person. So we just move on unaffected. But what if the news was about your brother, your uncle, your father? What if it was in your house? That was the news. It was yours that burned. See, when it's closer to home, we get affected and we weep for it. Now, Nehemiah, you could say, Jerusalem's his home. No, actually, Nehemiah never lived there, ever. It was the home of his father's. But see, Nehemiah understood a connection between him and them. Somehow we're all connected, even though I'm in Persia. And therefore, he hurt for it, because he saw it as his home, too. And we look at the world, and we say, this isn't our home. God's going to blow it up. We're going to get out of here. So it doesn't really matter that it's breaking. But I would challenge us to think biblically about this. That when Revelation 21 says that he's going to make this heaven and earth new. That we realize that this earth is not our home yet. But it one day will be when Jesus comes and restores all. So the broken person or place over here or there. If I see this theologically and biblically, it's all my home. It's all my kindred. And if we begin to see it that way, maybe we'd have more of a burden for the brokenness around us. So builders have a burden, number one. Number two, builders pray. Second tool, prayer. They pray a lot. Nehemiah prayed for the city and an opportunity to go there for four months. Four months. That's what it says. Now, I don't know about you, but I have prayed for things that I think like, oh, I really want to help out with that. And like a week goes by, nothing happens, I forget about it, right? Nehemiah is persistent in this prayer. And this is what I've come to learn, at least by looking at Nehemiah, is that sometimes God doesn't answer prayer right away. There's this waiting period. Why? God will sometimes wait to test the weight of our burden. Make sense? God will sometimes delay to see how strong that burden is. If you're still praying for four months, that is a legitimate burden. That is a legitimate concern. So there's Nehemiah. Four months of praying, we know that this man wants to be used. He's not one of those, oh, I forgot about Jerusalem already. No, he's still praying. Prayer also, by praying for four months, Nehemiah saw opportunity that he would never have seen otherwise. See, my praying opens, awakens my eyes to see opportunities I would never see otherwise. Really. Sometimes I think we sit back and we're like, I want to be a builder. I want to be used by God. But we just kind of sit back and wait for things and nothing ever happens. Reason is, we're not praying for that burden or that place to build. Because if we were, we might see opportunity where we wouldn't otherwise see it. For example, Nehemiah is just at another one of the king's parties. He's bringing wine to him, right? And the king looks at him. It's just a common everyday kind of conversation, right? What's wrong? You, you don't look very good. Now, if Nehemiah hasn't been praying about Jerusalem, he would probably just take that as a daily question, take it in stride. I would. Be like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I'm just not feeling good. Or, oh, yeah, something happened at home that I'm not feeling. You know, it's really sad. I'll tell you about it later when the party dies down. 
No, but Nehemiah, because he's been praying, it's been in his mind. And when the king says what's wrong, he says, here's my opportunity and I'm going to seize it. I'm going to tell the king what's wrong and I'm also going to ask him if I can go help it. Prayer awakens opportunity that you may never see otherwise in everyday common things. And prayer finally also allows you to be confident. Confident before man. See, the king asked Nehemiah, what's wrong? And it says that he was scared. He's supposed to be part of the life of the party, the wine giver. And now it's like, you're a damp spirit in here. Get out of here. He was scared. But it says that he right there in the midst of all this offered up a real quick prayer to God. And then he had the courage to say, this is what's going on. Charles Spurgeon, our friend, calls these exclamatory prayers. Actually, No. He called it something else, but I, I changed the word to... Yeah, he also calls it ejaculatory prayers, but that is <laughs> subjective. So, <laughs> uh, Exclamatory prayers. And, um, you know, only if you're, if you're persisting in praying a lot do these kind of prayers work well. And this is, this is what he said about them. Uh, this, this real quick prayer. So I prayed the God of heaven, then I gave him my answer. You know, what's wrong? Spurgeon says, it was what we call exclamatory prayer, prayer which, as it were, hurls a dart and then is done. It was not the type of prayer that stands knocking at mercy's door, knock, 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 but it was the concentration of many knocks into one. It was begun and completed, as it were, with one stroke. The exclamatory prayer... I desire to commend to you as among the very best forms of prayer. And you see, what Spurgeon is saying is it isn't just this like, we're just living through life and all of a sudden, oh God, help me. Like, okay, that's a weak, shallow prayer. But Nehemiah said, oh God, help me, because he was drawing upon four months of prayer. He had a deep well of four months of prayer, and he could just dip the bucket and offer a real quick prayer because it's all there in his heart. And that's the kind of prayer Spurgeon's encouraging that we pray a lot so that in the moment, exclamatory prayers are effective and accurate as a dart. So uh, builders have a burden. Builders pray a lot. (laughs) Builders, um, third, ask for help. Builders ask for help. And this is sometimes hard. We think, this is my vision. This is my thing. I'm going to go do it. And America, like, you know, celebrates the Lone Ranger and the person that can stand up and take 20 bullets and he keeps running, you know. Like, <laughs> um, that's not the way of the builder in the Bible. The way of the builder in the Bible asks for help. And help is beneficial um, for two reasons. First, you may not see the whole vision. You may not know exactly what needs to be done. You just know you want to do it. And someone can come alongside and help plug in those gaps. And second, when we share, um, when we share about our burdens, what we want to build in our vision, you never know who might join along and help you and want to be in that with you. You don't know what kind of gifts or what kind of inputs, what kind of power and resources is there for you if you never share. You know, we like to keep it all to ourselves because this is on my heart. And that means sharing your heart with somebody that's vulnerable. But the Bible says, take that risk and share. Nehemiah did. He went before the king and he said, this is what's on my heart. And the king could have said, you're fired because your heart's somewhere else. It's not here with me. All right, it's a lot of risk. But Nehemiah received 
the help of the king, the very help he needed. And then when he goes to Jerusalem, he stands before the people in Jerusalem. I didn't read this passage because I felt like it was getting kind of long. But the rest of the passage, he's before the people in Jerusalem. And he says to them, this is why I'm here. This is my vision. Will you join me in it? And he hence had a whole army. The wall was completed in 40 days. Remarkable time. So builders ask for help. And finally, builders have a passion for God's glory above all else. They have a passion for God's glory. Not their own. So this is, I'm going to read this because I didn't read it yet. Um, He's in Jerusalem. He tells the builders, this is why I'm here. He says this. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Now listen, see if this rings a bell. That's what he says. Come, let us build. Come, let us build. Does it ring a bell? It might, it might not. going to be kind of Bible savvy. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. An eerie echo to what the builders of the Tower of Babel said. Very exact same words. Come, let us build. Then it differs. Nehemiah said, let us build Jerusalem. They said, let us build for ourselves a city. And we know that the Tower of Babel was all about them to become great upon the earth. It was about their name, their glory, their reputation. And it failed. But Nehemiah says, come, let us build Jerusalem. What's Jerusalem? In his prayer, in chapter 1, verse 9, he said that Jerusalem is the place where God said he will place his name. Jerusalem is the place where God's name resides. In other words, Jerusalem is the city on a hill, the light for all the world. It's where God will be glorified and known to the nations. And he looks at the ruin of it and he says, this ought not to be for the sake of God and all the people knowing who he is. We need to rebuild this place. So come people for the name of our God, let's rebuild it. That's his driving passion. That's his motivation. It's for God's glory. So come, let us build, not like the failure of the Tower of Babel, but like God's glory in Jerusalem. Let's build that. And so I believe that if we seek to be builders and possess these four tools, a burden to build where things are broken, praying a lot, not afraid to ask for help and to share ourselves with others, and a passion for God's glory, with those, we can't fail. As Nehemiah said, at the very end of what we read, he said, the hand of God was upon me. Primarily, probably because he, he sought his glory above his own. And with that, God on our side, who or what can be against us? So, It's my encouragement and invitation that we would be like Nehemiah and seek broken down places that we can build up for the name of God. Jesus, we ask that you would help us to break for the brokenness around us. Give us hearts that are willing to carry that burden and to with it build your kingdom in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.